You are listening to Impact Hustlers, and I am your host, Michael Schaffert. I have made it my mission to inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs to solve some of the world's biggest social and environmental problems. And for this reason, I am speaking to some of the best entrepreneurs out there who are solving problems such as food waste, climate change, poverty, and homelessness. My goal is that Impact Hustlers will inspire you either by starting an impact business yourself, by joining the team of one, or by taking a small step, whatever that may be, towards being part of the solution to the world's biggest problems. In today's episode, I speak to Ricarda Sessa, the CEO of LifeEat. LifeEat is an edtech company that helps people through life transitions, such as becoming a parent, becoming a carer for a family member, or other changes in people's personal or professional lives. Uh, LifeEat has developed an augmented learning platform that mixes digital and real-life experiences and is based on scientific research. The platform has supported more than 15,000 employees at 80 companies, um, such as Accenture, Danone, and Generali, and has been named as one of the 10 most innovative companies for uh, employee reskilling by McKinsey. It's really good to have you on the show, Ricardo. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for inviting me, Michael. Thank you. So you founded LifeEat a few years ago as a result of your own personal experience uh, and returning from maternity leave, I think your second child. Uh, and uh, you came back to your job, but you found that you've lost, you had lost your managerial role um, that you actually had before. And um, there was kind of a mismatch of your motivation to get started again with work and the company kind of treating you slightly differently. Can you tell us more about that story and how that inspired LifeEat? Yes, I, I've been a manager in big companies for 15 years, so like quite a long time. Um, having a good career between Italy and abroad, I was also in Helsinki, in Finland. And it seemed to be normal until I became a mother. And when I became a mother, it happened twice in two different companies. I experienced the fact that becoming a mother was perceived to be as a problem, like something that would conflict. The role of mother was conflicting with my role of manager. And the first time it happened, and I just changed company. Uh, I wanted to move back to Italy, so it was fine. But then the second time when it happened again, I was really puzzled. Because on the other hand, as a manager, I was going through many trainings to develop some soft skills that I had realized I was de developing much better in my role as a mother. Think of soft skills like crisis management, listening, empathy. So those skills are very much needed by companies. They spend a lot of money for developing those skills in their people. And, and they're very difficult to, to develop. And in the moment in my life, in which I had more motivation to develop those skills, more opportunities to practice them, and so I was really improving them, I was seen as having a problem. And that was really, really weird to me. So the second time it happened, I realized that this was not by chance. And actually, I, I, I started reading data, and I realized that this happens everywhere in the world. So everywhere in the world, still in the 21st century, becoming a mother and becoming a parent, but... Uh, Father is a bit of a different story, but it's changing also the story of fathers. 
you feel seen as a problem in the workplace. And this is incredible, not only under a sustainable perspective, but also under the perspective of losing resources at the time they are developing. So you came back, you had all this uh, energy and um, uh, eagerness to, to get back and grow uh, professionally again and kind of get back into it. Uh, what was specifically the reaction of the company? How, 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 what did you face at the time? So the reaction starts before. The reaction starts as soon as you tell them you're pregnant, hmm. that in a way there is a culture that makes companies think that, uh, that becoming a mother, having more roles, means you will have less dedication or less time for your professional role. And this is wrong under a sociological perspective. Because uh, science uh, shows that when people have more roles, they have more opportunities to recharge, more opportunities to develop skills and more strengths because they have more places where they can uh, find their balance. So if, it, if something goes wrong in your role as a worker, you can go in your role as a mother and recover and the other way around. So, but this is culture, like if we talk about work-life balance, this means we are considering work and life as being opposite and needing to find the balance. Well, they are not anymore. And I think we have seen this. They are integrated. They are interconnected. They are part of the same person. So this happened before I left I left the company. I was already told, oh, so when you're back, you will want to do less. You will want to step back a little bit. And I'm like, why? I mean, I'm organized. Uh, I am, I'm, I, I get, and as you said, I want to contribute even more to a society where my children will, will grow. So I don't want to step back. I want to be there. I want to be take decisions. And, uh, and I realized this was a big problem. And so I started studying. What I did, I really started, I took a couple of years of study while, while doing other things, so not just studying. But I started studying, is it real that becoming a mother develops skills and leadership as I feel personally and could these skills and leadership be sold to companies as a benefit instead of a problem amazing uh, yeah uh, and and that's where it all started so tell us a bit more about the actual solution that you saw and uh, how life feed works and solves for that problem so the, the the phrase with which we were born as a company is maternity as a master's the initial idea was, if it's true that mothers leave the job for a while, being on maternity leave, and this is different from, from country to country, but they stay away from four weeks to three, six months. But it's true also that people do leave the workplace for trainings. So can we uh, help companies seeing this leave as a training leave and not just a personal leave? And we started developing this methodology, which is called life-based learning, that allows people to find their own skills and their own resources in their real life. So they get the theory about the skill, let's say listening. You know what listening is about. You know what behaviors you can use for listening. And so on. that's all theoretical. But then the experiential part doesn't happen in the classroom, which is very challenging to have those kind of experiential parts happening in the classroom but you go looking for it in your real life you go looking how do you listen in your real life with the people you care about what kind of feedback do you get what behaviors are more effective and i started delivering this kind of training in the classroom to companies because that's the world where i come from i know how companies work 
And it, it really worked very well because it was fitting a big need. It was, in a way, solving two problems at the same time. One is how do I uh, let mothers come back to work with all their strengths instead of feeling demotivated? And where do I find the soft skills that my company needs? So it was, we were putting it together. And it was working so well that I was frustrated because I was thinking, how far can we go if we keep it in the classroom? And that's when we thought of uh, bringing it digital. And that was a major change. It happened five years ago when we really founded the company, Life Based Value, which is the, the mother of Life Eve. And we started selling to companies a platform where their new mothers could access and find how they were developing their skills. And very quickly became a platform also for fathers. And then a bit later, we opened a stream for caregivers because every life experience, every life transition is a moment in which people at the same time have to make a cognitive effort to redefine themselves. So their brain goes back into learning mode, look for different networks, look for different resources. So they, they are particularly visible. They're particularly, I wouldn't say needy. I think we have to change the perspective from being in need to being ready okay, for something. And they have opportunities to train new skills because they have new, new, new situations, new relations. So this works for mothers, for fathers, for caregivers. But this works for every type of transition in life. If you change job, if you move house, there are so many transitions in our life. And every time you have the opportunity to rethink about who you are and find your own skills in your life events. So five years later, we are a big, bigger company. We, we are 35 people. We have, as you said, uh, 80 customers, big companies. We're working with big companies because they are, let's say, more ready. This is a very new way of learning. And it, it, innovation is strange because you would think that if you have something that nobody else has, you can sell it in a minute. But it's not true. Because it's basically you have to explain it everything from A to Z about what it is, why do they need it, how does it work, does it work. It's not like selling a pizza that everybody has tried a pizza sooner or later. You're selling something that people doesn't even need know they need. They don't have that they don't they don't have that need, they don't recognize it, nobody else has showed it to them. So it's quite challenging and it's easier with companies which already have this capacity of looking a bit in a in a broader way at things. But in these years, we could really prove that the methodology works. So life-based learning is a new way to learn that brings to the economy and the society the kind of skills that the economy and the society need, and at the same time, allow people to know themselves better and come at peace with the fact that we, are, we all have a complex life and many identities at the same time. Mm-hmm. And uh, on a practical level, uh, the companies you work with, uh, they give their employees access to your platform, which is this uh, the digital platform. I believe there's also some uh, real life experiences on top of that. Uh, tell us how actually what do people actually use? What's what's what are the activities they do as part of this? So as I, as I told you, we, we are scientifically based, and this is very important because if you want to change the mindset, if you want to change the culture, you must have very strong knowledge behind you. And most of what we do was already discovered in a way or another, but just wasn't used the way we're using it. And for example, we have our roots in the, in the theory about breaking stereotypes. 
because that's the starting point. You have to break the stereotypes. You have to break the previous schemes in order for people to acquire a different framework on things. And so how do we do it? People access, they, they, uh, they apply on a voluntary basis, so it's their choice to do it. And imagine how busy you are when you just became a mother or a caregiver and you also find the time for doing this, which means they are very motivated. And the motivation is key. And motivation is what lacks in, in traditional trainings. People are rarely motivated to learn. In this case, they are motivated. They apply themselves. And what do they get? They get a mix of components. First of all, to break stereotypes, you have to provide some knowledge. So they get information about, scientifically speaking, what is happening to them? Why do they feel tired or confused? Is it is normal to need new maps? If this is a transition and everybody has some in their life, so you're not alone, and so on. So you get this kind of information that helps you break the previous uh, frameworks. Then you get the opportunity to reflect. And that's a very, very key in our methodology. You get some prompts, we call them prompts. They are questions, but they're not traditional questions. They are questions which break stereotypes. So instead of asking you, oh, you must be, how tired are you now that you have a baby? We ask them, how did your way of listening change since you have a baby? Mm. And so the, different, the, the power of questions is that they trigger your own knowledge. They don't mm. provide you with some content. They give room to your own content. Mm. And so you feel the frame with who you are and what you're discovering. And then you really learn in that sense. That's why we say that we are framing, but we're not giving content. We're just giving new frameworks. And then the next step is we tell you in the next week, look at yourself when you do this, when you listen. See what behaviors you're using. See if you're more effective in listening at home or at the office and ask yourself why. Why, since this is the same skill, why do I use it better somewhere than somewhere else? What are the behaviors I'm using? And then try to transfer the behaviors from one role to the other, which might seem strange, but in fact, it's very funny and it's very effective so you realize that for example when you're listening to your kids you get closer to them you get in contact with them you really listen and when you're listening to your colleague you're distracted you're looking at something else and so on and you're more effective with your kids and you can transfer those behaviors at work but it works also the other way around which is also very useful because most of us especially in italy we become parents when we are 31 which is quite late And when we become parents, very often we don't know how to do it. We think we don't have the skills to be a parent, but we have a lot of professional skills. And for example, you can use delegation at work much better if you take it from your professional role. You can use motivation, you can use management, and you can use leadership. So there is a lot that you can find if you break the barriers between all your roles. And in this, we really we have a, good, a lot of good partners with universities, for example, because this, uh, um, this research about role overlap. So how many roles does each one of us have? How do they overlap with each other? Do they overlap or do we keep them separate? Because that's how we think we are meant to be. What is the impact of overlapping them more? For example, Kellogg's University uh, sh showed that the more role overlap people have, so meaning I am the same person when I'm at work and when I'm at home, the more ethical is their behavior, which is not surprising because, of course, if I look at myself in the mirror and I see the mother, the friend, the manager, and the founder at the same time, 
I tend to behave, behave better in all of those roles because I'm the same person. So it gives me awareness about that. So there are a lot of implications if you manage to change this perspective on, on how people see themselves. Amazing. Um, obviously, 2020 is a really um, good or fitting year to discuss this. Uh, as you say, you're uh, helping people with all kinds of life transitions. And I think uh, if you uh, talk, if I talk to people in my networks, I think almost everybody's going through some sort of transition this year. Um, um, so what's your observation on that like what what are like the most common themes with transitions this year and um what do you think can be done about them is that is your methodology right for that as well or what, what can be done for people that are currently struggling to transition when the when the pandemia started in uh, in march we asked ourselves how can we help And we actually realize what you're saying, that this is another huge, this is a transition for a lot of people, a global transition. This is the first time ever that all the population of the world is going through the same transition in a way or another. And so in, a, in, a, in one month and a half, we created a new program, which is called Transitions, <laughs> and address exactly the transition. In this case of pandemia, actually, it could apply also to others. But we have been selling this for the pandemia itself. We have now uh, a couple of thousands of participants to this program. And so we, I can actually tell you how is it going. And I can tell you that now this is the second, second phase of the, of the lockdown is different. We have, been, we have seen especially the first phase and a half after that. I can tell you about this phase next time we speak because we're seeing it now. But from the first phase of, of the, of the pandemia, uh, people felt uh, displaced, of course, and unsecure, but at the same time, they found a place where they felt safe, which was home. And they, they in a way, went back to the old maps, to some maps which are more uh, basic for us. Uh, I think we went down in the, in the Maslow pyramid in a way, but that reassured a lot of people. So the kind of reflections they have been sharing with us but maybe also guided by what we're telling them, because we, what we help them doing is realize that it's okay to be in what is, what's called the neutral zone of a transition, which is after the disaster has hit or after the changes happen, you have a long phase in which you are very uncertain and you lack all the old reference points you used to have. All your habits change in a way or another, and you, you lose Uh, the perspective of what's going to be. But at the same time, this is a very precious and unique time to reassess who you are and realize that you have a power on what you can be in the future. If you, if you are supported in becoming self-aware of how your story relates to the overall story, you get back in, 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 in I would say control because I don't like the word control, you get back in becoming the author of your story. So we are now going through a very intense and long neutral zone of this transition that is rightfully uncertain, but the uncertainty is needed for us to get back in, 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 in knowing who we are and what we want. And we can use it this way. We have to avoid going back to the old reality. We have to use this transition to go forward. And the people who are doing this with us, they show that they're ready for that. And that's, I think, the most amazing thing. What we say is that people 
have everything inside. They have wonders inside. But the problem is they don't have the space to express it. But if you ask them the right questions and if you provide them the, the space to express the wonder they have inside, the wonder will come out. And if it comes out, it's going to be available for the companies, for the society, for the economy, for themselves. Absolutely, yeah. Um, do, do you think companies, and you're working with so many big companies, are they very aware that they have to play a role with this transition, uh, this kind of these transitions that are happening in 2020, the, the pandemic-related ones? Or is it still a lot of education, as you said, with um, the, um, the education you have to do around their role in uh, supporting uh, mothers that return to work or fathers that return to work? So companies, uh, essay, uh, the, the COVID has been a good way in a, in, a, in a bad, with some very bad effects, but a good way for a lot of, of pre-existing issues to become visible. So we were already going in that direction, but we were in a way delaying the impact. And then we had the impact suddenly. And I see comp some companies are still in a way trying to just accelerate the back to the normality. But most of the ones I see are conscious, are aware that things must change. And I hear a lot about how people are becoming key. I think companies realize that how people feel and the way they live is part of who they are and part of who they bring to the office. And they can't ignore that any longer because they risk to lose their people. They go looking for engagement, for, for motivation. They go looking for skills, but they, maybe they have been looking in the wrong places. And now the fact that we have seen each other's house and we've, we've seen each other's dynamics, we've seen each other's life, paradoxically, by being far, that is showing companies what we really are and what they could really get. So I'm, I'm, I'm trustful that things will change in a good way. Got it. Um, we have a lot of early stage entrepreneurs listening to this podcast that are maybe at the place uh, that you were when you first started the company or just before that. And uh, one of the topics I always like to speak about is obviously the uh, the more challenging parts of the entrepreneurial journey and lessons learned, right? Um, I think the first thing I want to pick up on something that uh, you uh, mentioned earlier, which is that in many cases, companies don't even have a perceived problem. They think everything is fine and, you know, we're doing everything. We're a great company. <laughs> um, and obviously, that's really challenging. If you're going to companies and with many of them, you kind of just don't find a natural demand. You have to educate them. How did you f go through that journey? And uh, was it very kind of difficult to do that and how did you crack that right <laughs> so my su my suggestion is don't try to educate companies look for the ones which are ready because innovation is very fragile at the beginning and it's 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 already needing a lot of resources without having to fight battles with companies which are not ready so find allies find companies who can prove your solution together with you and create case studies, create results, and then the other companies will follow. That's the only way to go. Um, I think that's the starting point. And so finalize means not only find the right customers. I have a few customers who really are like my partners for me. We are building this together. But also find partners in, in the sense of 
people who you work with, people who can add their own experience to your work. And that's the most difficult part of creating a company. I think there are two difficult parts. Uh, there are three, at least three. So one is finding the right people. And this might sound obvious, but when you try it, then you really see what it means. Um, and the second is going from idea to whatever. And if I look backwards, I can see how we have gone from the idea to the reality. But if I if I remember how I was how I was feeling at the beginning, seven or eight years ago, I had no idea of what I was going to do. It was not planned, and so it was just doing my homeworks every day and keeping an eye to the future while doing every day the right things in a, in a good way. Then it took me here. But of course, going from the idea to, to reality is very challenging. And and the third point is of course finding the financial resources because I thought that when I was going, I was putting something on the market that the companies would need and pay for, and that's how I would fund the adventure, the, the, the company. But it's not true. You need more financial resources than what the market can provide you if you want to grow at the speed of innovation. The innovation you create has a speed, and it needs more financial resources for the first years. So I had to go fundraising as well. And that's another job. That's not the job of an entrepreneur. It's another work. You need different skills. You need an extra time. And now, of course, I'm a mother. I have two kids and I want to be home with them in the evening. But still, I think this is the best job in the world, especially because you have the feeling every day that you are doing something meaningful and that is needed. Has there been a moment in the journey of creating the company or since you started the company that you were looking back at it was really critical to get things right or like a moment where maybe you were like, oh God, this could actually make us fail and uh, that you overcame anything that you can share on that? Okay. Um, there, there has been critical moments. They were more about my emotions than the fear of failing. I don't, I don't have a fear of failing because I think that we have already succeeded. And, and so I know we have already succeeded. And we, have, we can do more, we can do better, we will do more and better. We could still fail, but that's not what, what scares me. While I had critical moments in which emotionally I was, it was too hard. And, and it can be emotionally too hard when you are stretched in a way that you don't feel yourself. You can't be yourself. I think that you are very strong when you can express yourself at best, when you know you are doing what you can do best. And you can't do this all the time. Sometimes you have to do things that you're not very good at doing and stretch you. And so I had a couple of moments in which were emotionally very, very hard. Uh, but the motivation of knowing why I was doing this kept me going forward. Absolutely. Um, and when you talk to companies, even those that are like forward thinking, have forward thinking management, and they're like, okay, we need this type of thing. What what are generally the biggest hurdle for you, uh, hurdles for you for you to get them to use it? Is there like any sort of barrier still culturally or anything like that to, for them to actually adopt it? So on a, on a cultural perspective, Uh, the barrier can be that they see it as a support for people where it actually is a support for them. <laughs> Because this is not about helping people. This is about bringing resources to the, to the economy and to the companies. So it's very important for me. I mean, I can sell it anyway. I'm not going to not sell it to those who don't understand. But for me, it's a, it's a pity if they buy it for the wrong reason. Mm. And uh, on, a, on a more um, rational perspective, I get crazy when they ask for the ROI of what we do. 
uh, return on, on uh, investment, like return on investment of soft skills. Can you prove that if people feel better, they work better? What uh, results can you show that if empathy improves, then sales improve? And I'm like, okay, <laughs> there are a lot of data about this. I can go looking for them and use them with you. But this is all like, okay, stop. Let's stop asking this question because mm. <laughs> no. Absolutely. Um, uh, that's that's really great to hear um, your perspective on this. I have one more question, and that's about the future. Um, if you think about the next 10 years, um, how does the world look like in 10 years if LifeFeed continues to succeed? <laughs> so I, I think that my, my dream is that life-based learning be becomes a new absolutely normal, uh, obvious methodology of learning so that all life events and the complexity of our lives is seen as a positive factor and not a conflicting factor with the world and the work. And the, the collateral but very important effect of this would be that we would bring much more care to the world. Because the problem is today, this, this separation between roles is taking is keeping care the care aspect of life into the private life, and the, the public aspect of life is lacking it and missing it like crazy, and it's gonna die if we don't bring more care to it. But if we open these doors and if we, if we let ourselves care everywhere, I think we can improve the economy and the society a lot of times, and we can. We can, a lot more can happen. So my hope is that we, we find the technological way to expand and to scale up enough to embed this methodology everywhere, becoming invisible. Wow. It's a, it's a great vision to be part of. I think you're part of really this wider movement of companies that are bringing about uh, and kind of tapping into this cultural change within Uh, even big corporates where it's not just like show up to the office between nine and five and we don't care about your private life and uh, where I think there's a trend where life is just like con very connected right it's not uh, separate like that and um, we've had companies like uh, I'm just remembering on the podcast we had um, Nick the founder of a company called Unmind in, in the UK uh, who is helping big companies Uh, manage uh, or help support the uh, employees with mental health, but then also, again, uh, having the benefits for, for the companies. Um, we've had uh, Quit Genius, which is helping employees deal with addictions. And I think uh, some of the most forward-thinking companies are really stepping up now. And it's great to hear from you that there is companies stepping up as well with the topic of uh, life transitions, with the topic of returning as a as a mother um, returning into work, uh, as a carer returning into work. And uh, it's been really inspiring to listen to you. So thank you very much for sharing this. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for your questions and your attention and listening. Thank you, Ricardo.
Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share the episode, leave us a review, and consider becoming a supporter on buymeacoffee.com slash impacthustlers. This means a lot to me. Thank you very much for tuning in and see you next time. Bye.